All right, Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 35 is where we'll start, and then we'll finish into verse 43, uh, 46, I mean, uh, later on. Verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Now I'm going to make a statement tonight that you're going to hear over and over and over again. You might even want to write it down, but you're going to hear it a lot. God's word is true. God's word is sure. And whatever God says will happen, will happen no matter how strongly you feel otherwise. I'm going to say it again, and that's going to be the foundation of where we're going tonight. God's word is true. God's word is sure. And whatever God has said will happen, will happen, no matter how strongly you feel otherwise. Now, you're going to see that not only in this context here, but in many other contexts tonight throughout our study. Here, Jesus quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Put your bookmark in 26 and go to Zechariah and look at chapter 13, verse 7. In Zechariah 13, verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. All right? Jump over to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, look at verse 32. John chapter 16, verse 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. So that night, Jesus says to them, just like it's been prophesied, it's written and it's going to happen. You're all going to be scattered because of me. Peter says, I disagree. I don't know about the rest of these bums. Pretty much is what he's saying. You're going to see that's important later on. If you notice, even if they all fall away, I won't. You probably are talking about everybody else except me. Jesus says, actually, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny you even know me three times. Peter goes, there's no way. Even if I have to die for you, I will never, ever deny you. Basically calling him a liar. You're pretty much calling him a liar. I'm going to say something to you again, and I want you to hear it. God's word is true. God's word is sure. And whatever God has said will happen, will happen, no matter how strongly you feel otherwise. Go to Matthew chapter 26 and look at verses 47. We'll jump ahead to verses 47 through 54. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he'll at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Look closely what he says next. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? 
Now here Peter is still trying to prove Jesus wrong. I'm not only willing to die for you, Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. I'll even swing a sword to defend you when they come to arrest you. And Jesus says, first off, I don't need your help. That's something we Christians really need to understand. A lot of times Christians have this mindset that God needs us to defend him. He doesn't need us. He's not served by human hands if he needed anything, Acts 17, 25 says. But on top of that, he then says to Peter, he said, first off, I don't need your help. God, God could have sent, the Father could send 12 legions of angels and I could stop this. But if I tried to stop this, I'd be going against what God has said is going to happen. How would the scripture be fulfilled saying that it must be so? Jump over to verse 69 in Matthew 26. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. By the way, this is that same night. The same night that Jesus says to them, the prophecy said that you're all going to be scattered and you're going to be scattered. That same night that he said, you're all going to go reach to your own home. That same night that Peter said, no, there's no way. I don't know about the rest of these bums, but I'll never deny you. I won't leave you. Even if I have to die for you. And Jesus says, actually, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny you even know me three times. Peter says, no. And he even tries to defend Jesus and swing in his sword. Yet just a few hours later, in rapid succession, he did not. Have you ever thought about the fact that the first time he did it, maybe he might have gone... I mean, Jesus said three times, that's one. I'm not doing it again. You ever thought about that? How come Peter was so sure that he wouldn't deny Jesus, but Jesus had said, you're going to deny you know me three times and you're all going to be scattered. How come Peter did it, even though Jesus had told him it was going to happen and he had the chance to not have it happen? Very good. Tim says, because God wanted it to happen. Actually, the real answer is this. Because God's word is sure and God's word is true. And what God says will happen will happen no matter how strongly you feel otherwise. Again, you're going to find this to be very, very helpful for us by the end of our study tonight. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, though. It says that he realized what he had done. He went away and he wept bitterly. Another one of the gospel accounts says right about this time, somehow Peter and Jesus can see each other. And Jesus looks at him and Peter goes away in tears. Now, for years, I was taught by this one preacher that I grew up with. He was saying that Jesus looked at Peter with this majorly disappointed face. And that crushed Peter, and he went away sad. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Is God upset with us when he, what he says about us comes true? No. And what we say we will do, we don't? No, he already knew it. <laughs> exactly. I want you to let this truth sink in. This is where it's going to start to become really, really helpful for us. Because we live in a world in which our enemy is out to convince us of things that don't line up with what God has promised. And he's convinced us to the point that we feel very, very strongly, even though God's word says something that's true, we feel it can't be that way in my case. Jesus knows everything, like you just pointed out. And he's never, ever surprised. And therefore, if disappointment involves surprise, Jesus can never be disappointed. 
Now, the Bible says that God is grieved when we sin, but that's a different thing. And I'm going to touch on that real quick, and I'll show you a couple passages in a second that talk about that. When he's grieved, he's not saddened in the sense that he's disappointed with us or surprised that we would do that. He already knows. His grief is actually he hurts for us, that we're missing out on the many blessings that are available to us when we walk in disobedience to him. The Bible actually says that God is for those who are for him. God, the Bible says that God will work all things for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The Bible actually says that God honors those who honor him. The Bible actually says that he'll bless those who focus on him and meditate on his word day and night. There's so much available to us in our relationship with Jesus. But when we decide not to obey and not to walk in obedience, we miss out on those blessings and it grieves God that he can't bless us. Imagine yourself as a parent where you had decided and the kid doesn't know it, but you've got a real treat stored up. Maybe they wanted to go to Disney and you actually had, had made plans to take them or there is a certain place they love to eat and you were going to take them there. But right before you go and bless them with what you had planned for them, they start walking in absolute disobedience and they back talk you and whatever. And all of a sudden you realize I can't reward this behavior grieves you because you wanted to, but now I can't. In that same way, that's how God feels. But go back to John chapter 16, verse 32. We just stopped in verse 32. Let me read to you John 16, 33 as another evidence of the fact that when we do what God has said we would, he's not upset with us. In John chapter 16, look at verses 32 and 33 again. Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone. Don't be, don't be bothered. I'm not alone. The Father is with me. Now, I have said these things to you that in me you may have what? Peace. Now, before we get into the in the world, you love trouble, tribulation and take heart of overcome the world because we love that, which reminds us we're going to be in a mess in this world. But listen to what Jesus just said. Tonight, you're all going to betray me. You're all going to go away from me. I've told you these things so that you'll have. Isn't that crazy? I'm not telling you this so that you'll realize how upset with you I am. I'm actually telling you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you'll remember that I told you that it was going to happen. And actually, you can be comforted by the fact that I said you were going to do this. Let me give you another example, and I'll hopefully be used by God to help you understand what I'm saying a little bit more. Go to Luke 22. Luke's account of this episode is very helpful. In Luke 22, verses 31 through 34, it says, Simon, Simon, Jesus is speaking, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. By the way, that word you there is plural, all the, all the disciples, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that you is singular, that your faith may not fail. Some of your translations might have another Simon there, that I prayed for you, Simon. That word Simon's not really in the original text, but it was added by some translators to clarify. Jesus said, Satan asked to sift all of you disciples, but I prayed specifically for you, Simon. But look at what Jesus prays. My prayer is that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, of course, Peter says to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, we got to back up for a little bit here. There's a lot in this section. First off, Jesus says, Satan's asked to mess with y'all. And Peter, I'm specifically praying for you in this situation. By the way, have you noticed that Satan has to ask for permission to mess with him? 
See, we a lot of times think Satan's free to do whatever he wants in our life. No, he's not. That's why in that whole situation with Job, he was only allowed to do in Job's life after God says, okay, but only to this parameter. Satan, once you are a child of God, cannot touch you. Remember when Jesus walked on the earth? He was not only 100% man, he was also 100% God. And when he walked on the earth, the demons that were in these people, they saw him and they didn't just see Jesus of Nazareth. What did they also see? We know who you are, who? Son of the Most High God. And when they saw Jesus, what did the demons do? Whoa. We know who that is. Well, what does the Bible say happens to us when we trust him as our Savior? He erases our sin, forgives us, and he puts his spirit to live within us. Folks, do you realize when you walk around on this earth, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms see Jesus and go, whoa, I can't touch that person unless he gives me permission. We're not even able to be allowed to be tempted by the devil unless God says yes. Did you ever thought about that? In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says that no one's tempted beyond what they're able to bear. And with the temptation, God will provide a way to escape. But before that, he says he will not allow you to be tempted with more than you. Did you catch that? Not allow you to be tempted. Satan can't even tempt you without the Father's permission. But there's something else cool that's here. If you've been tracking the relationship between Jesus and Peter, when Jesus first meets Peter, and I don't have time to walk you through this and take you through the actual passages, so you have to just trust me or double check me later on. When he first meets Peter, he says, you are Simon. One day you will be Peter. But then in Matthew 16, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood doesn't open your eyes. And I say, you are now Peter. You're that new creation. When he first meets him, he says, your name is Simon. But I see a finished product one day. And one day you're going to be rock man. That's what Peter means, rock man. And then when Peter makes his profession of his faith, he says, you're that guy now. You are Peter now. But then after this, Jesus calls him Simon. He says, Simon, Simon. Now, hang on a second. Is Jesus having a senior moment? I mean, has he forgotten that he's already changed his name? I mean, I'm a parent of three kids. I get my own kids' names mixed up sometimes. Maybe he just, just got a little confused. No, he's reminding Peter, even though he's that new creation, he's going to act like the old guy a little bit. By the way, anybody else, even though you're a new creation, act like the old guy a little bit? I do. And Jesus gets his attention that way. And he says, look, my prayer. I've let Satan mess with y'all. But my prayer for you, Simon, is not that you will pass the test. My prayer for you is that after you fail the test, because failing the test actually will be better for you than passing the test. My prayer for you is that after you fail the test, you won't quit. Of course, Peter says, you still don't get it, Lord. You don't know me like I know myself. (laughs) Actually, I know you better than you know yourself, Jesus says. Exactly. Have you noticed anything about Peter? He was always one of the first ones to answer. He was the leader. He was gifted to be a leader. But he was always wanting to be the the first answer. Have you ever noticed most of the time his first answer was wrong? (laughs) He sure did. But don't miss what Jesus says. He says, I prayed for you. And after you return, after you, when you've turned back again, you're going to go away from me. You're going to deny you know me. But when you come back, I'm going to use you to strengthen your brothers. I'll come back to that in just a second. Peter, of course, says, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Don't miss what Jesus says next. He says, I tell you who. Did you catch that? He calls him by the new name when he tells him, you're going to deny you know me three times. In other words, he says, hey, 
Remember that new guy? I still see him. Even though you're going to deny you know me three times tonight, I still see the finished product. Folks, let me tell you something. If God knows how many times you still are going to struggle with a certain sin, let's just say, let's just throw an easy number out so I can do math in my head, that Jesus knows that you're going to make, commit this sin a hundred more times. And you commit this sin for the 75th time. We go, that's the 75th time I've done that. You know what God says? Only, 20, only 25 more. Only 25 more. Why? Because he sees the finished product. Let me ask you a question. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, does it not say that he who began this good work in you will finish it? Oh, by the way, you need to believe what he has said because his word is true and his word is sure. And what he has said will happen, will happen no matter how strongly you feel differently. Peter felt like he had absolutely blown it. He wept bitterly and Jesus wasn't upset. He hurt for Peter because Peter didn't get it. That's why the Bible says when Jesus rose from the dead, the first person he went to go find was Peter. But I also want you to look at this when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. He's not only going to be used as a leader in the church. I think this brothers might also mean the nation of Israel. Because if you know, the Bible says in the book of Galatians chapter 2 that Paul had been chosen to go to the Gentiles and Peter had been chosen to go to the Jews. Now, I've shared this with some of you before, but let me just remind you, that used to bother me. Because in my mind, because I'm smarter than God, I used to always think Paul would have been the best person to preach to the Jews. I mean, he was a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee. He had been taught by Gamaliel. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. He could have taken the scriptures and shown the Jews who Jesus was. Why did Paul, why did God use Paul with all that nice background in Judaism, which is wasted on the Gentiles? Go and teach the Gentiles when Peter, who's a fisherman, uneducated, not going to be respected by those Jewish people. Why would he have Peter go preach to them? And then all of a sudden one day God opened my eyes. Aren't you glad that it's a Jew of the Jews that preached to the Gentiles that salvation is by faith alone and nothing else. This wasn't coming from some guy that was coming from, from Gentilism, if you will, saying, hey guys, all we gotta do is believe in Jesus and we're good. No, this was coming from a guy who had been raised in the Old Testament, who knew the law, and he came to realize that you, the law just showed you you can't keep it and you're saved alone by faith in Jesus. That's the best person to preach because it's coming from the truth. And you know what? You know who was a better person to preach to the Jews? I mean, the Jews that had Jesus put to death? Peter. Because Peter can go back and say to them, listen closely, guys. I know you denied him. I know you killed him. I know you welcomed him and then decided, nope, he ain't the one, and you had him put to death on a cross. But you know what? I did worse. I lived with him for three years. I saw him raise Jairus' daughter. The other guys didn't get to see it. I saw him uh, raise Lazarus. I saw him transfigured on that mountain when only James and John were with me. And we weren't even allowed to talk about it until after he rose from the dead. I saw his glory shine through his body. I know that he was God. I knew that he was God. And when push came to shove, I acted like I never knew him either. But he forgave me. And he'll forgive you. Jesus says, um, you're going to go through a test and you're not going to pass it, but that's okay. Because I can take your failure and turn it into something powerful. 
Let me ask you a question. I like to ask churches around the country and they don't want to answer it. What's more important to God? That we grow in our relationship with him or that we do everything right? Then how come all we focus on is whether or not everybody's doing everything right? We see people that have made mistakes and failures and decisions that there are going to be scars and it's grieved this Holy Spirit. But at the same time, we actually act like, OK, that guy's done. That woman's done. When actually God says, um, if you go back and look at all the people in the Bible that I've used, uh, David did a whopper, did he not, with Bathsheba? Uh, King Solomon, could I, shall I go on? I, Abraham, she's not my wife, she's my sister, twice. Uh, I know God's promise, maybe I'm supposed to sleep with my handmaid, your handmaid. You know, all these things God uses, we're all, well, the Bible says that we're broken people. We have a tendency to judge people. We do have a tendency to judge people because we think everybody's supposed to be perfect. But the part of the reason is, is because we expect ourselves to be perfect and we know we're not. And it makes ourselves feel better to point out everybody else's faults. We don't have grace. No, we don't. Go to John 21. We already know that Jesus actually, right after he rose from the dead, had already went and first the person he went to go chase down was Peter. We don't have the encounter of that written down. We just have it recorded that it did happen in a couple of places. But in John 21, here we see a third time that Jesus appears to his disciples after he rose from the dead. Look at verses uh, 1 through 19. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, by the way, I love the fact that he's called Simon Peter now. You know, I don't know what my new name is, but I'm Jim and whatever my new name is. I'm the new person, but I still once in a while look like, well, let's just say I'm, an, I'm a Peter, but I look like Simon once in a while. So I'm a Simon Peter. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Now, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, excuse me, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they're not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and so would the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In other words, I remember a guy that said he loved me the most. Don't know about the rest of these bums. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved this time because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. I almost picture Peter catching on at this point. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, 
feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, they're out there fishing. Jesus uses the same kind of a thing he had done earlier when he had introduced himself to Peter and those guys. When he said, hey, throw the net out and let's get some fish. And they said, Lord, we fished all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, and as you know, they threw and caught in so much fish, they were astounded. And Peter, at that time, when he first met Jesus, falls on his knees and says, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, actually, I'm going to use you to catch men now. And he calls them and they became his disciples. Now, later on, after three years of walking with him, after the crucifixion and now the resurrection, Peter's out there fishing with some other disciples and they don't catch any fish because the Lord's controlling how it all works out. By the way, the Lord does control whether you make any money or not. Let me just say that right now. Whether your business is successful or not, the Lord's controlling all that. Don't think it's you or what you, what you do. It's the Lord who controls that. The scripture says that. He, they, he says, hey, have you guys caught any fish? They don't know it's Jesus at this point. And they say no. And he says, well, throw some on the right side of the boat. Now, don't you think they fished all night? They've thrown some on the right and the left? And if you know anything about net fishing, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference if it's on this side of the boat or that side of the boat. <laughs> but you know what? They're at that point now where they're willing to try anything. Even though they don't know it's Jesus, they throw it on the right side of the boat and so many fish come into the net, they can't hardly bring it in. And Peter, John realizes it first and says to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter throws on his outer garment and jumps in the water. You know what he was doing? He was trying to be the first one to shore. In other words, I don't want to wait for the boat and wait for the, sh that's Jesus. I need to prove to him that I love him more than these guys. And he starts heading for sure. Some of the other accounts show that they followed him in other translations. They followed him in the boat. And it's obvious when they get to the shore, Peter's there and he helps getting in the boat to pull some of the fish. And then Peter and Jesus and the disciples are around the fire where he's got the charcoal. And I almost picture Jesus saying, hey, this fire reminds me of something. Hey, Peter, when's the last time I saw you around a fire? By the way, do you all know? What was going on when Peter was around the fire the last time? He was denying him. I remember a guy said he loved me the most. Do you really love me more than everybody else? Peter says, I really do love you. And you notice Jesus doesn't say, then why would you deny me? He didn't pull up the past. He said, let's get going from here. Does it three times. And I, like I shared earlier, I really believe that Peter caught on by the third time. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus, I picture him winking at him saying, yep. Let's get going. Stop beating yourself up. But then Jesus does something that I think some of us might have missed. I don't know when this conversation moves from the fire to a one-on-one -on -one walk with Jesus along the shore of the lake. But as you keep reading, Peter turns and see in verse 25, or sorry, verse 20, Peter turns and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So somehow this conversation moves from around the fire to Peter and Jesus walking. And Jesus says to him, remember that guy that told me he would die for me? You will. You will. Isn't that cool? The scripture says you're going to be stretching your arms out. This picture of crucifixion and dress, be addressed by someone else and be taken where you don't want to go. And he, by this he showed him by what kind of death he would glorify God. He was given the picture of his crucifixion at that point. Jesus goes out of his way to say, I see the finished product and you're going to finish strong. You're going to finish well. By the way, Peter was put to death by crucifixion. If you study uh, church history. 
He had 25 years to prepare for that day. And as we know, he was crucified upside down because when it came time, he said he's not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. He said, crucify me upside down. But he had been already told 25 years earlier that that day was going to come and he was ready. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 31 through 39. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? By the way, um, is God for you or against you? For us. We need to lock that in, guys. God's word is sure. God's word is true. And what God has said is going to happen, no matter how strongly you may feel otherwise, or Satan might have tried to convince you otherwise. God's for us. Who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? By the way, do you know that it's not the Father who judges whether or not you get into heaven? It's Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 22 says this, The Father judges no one, but he's handed all judgment over to the Son. So the one that's condemning is who? It's Jesus. The one who's already died for us, and more than that, that he was raised and is at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed, God. For your sake, God, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In this world, we're going to have trouble. But in you, we can have peace because in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Folks, Satan loves to come when we fail and say, God's upset with you. He's angry with you. He's put you on a lower shelf. No. The one who denied he even knew the Lord three times, even though he had proven or said to him, I will prove it to you. I will love you the most. Even though that same night he was proven to be wrong and God to be right. That same Jesus went out of his way the day he rose from the dead that morning and many other times to go seek Peter out and say, you're good with me. And folks, it's time that we who are in Christ start to really allow God to reach us with his love. Well, he's already died for us, but we still feel like we have to earn his approval on a daily basis. The scripture is full of promises of God that are available to those who would just believe them. That's why the Bible says we don't need to worry about man. We can trust that God's for if he's for us. It doesn't matter who wins the election. It doesn't matter who's in charge of the Senate. All these things that are going on, it doesn't make a difference. Because if God's for us, we're going to be all right. In this world, there's going to be trouble. There's going to things going to get worse and worse and worse. I just preached this past Sunday at a church in, at First Baptist in the Atlantic, and I started off the message by telling them I have great news. 2020 is over, but I got bad news. There's no promise that 2021 will be any better, and chances are it'll be worse because the Scripture says that things are going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back. Wickedness is going to increase. Godlessness is going to increase. We aren't to be expecting that things will all of a sudden get better. But we who are Christians can have joy and peace in the midst of this, no matter what goes on around us. 
But you know what? As I travel this country and I speak to Christians all around, all they want to talk about is the election. All they want to talk about is what's going on in America. All they want to talk about is the stock market or, or, the, or, or the Senate race or all these things. We've taken our eyes off of where we can get our peace. By the way, let me tell you, you know what's not going to fix 2021? A vaccine. Now, I'm not saying get it or don't get it. I'm just saying don't put your hope in it. We don't know how things are going to go. But we can tell you this much. The one who's in ultimate control of it all has already said, you're mine and I love you and I'll take care of you. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses 17 through 22. Paul says, Now I say this, this I say, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the Peter, not the Simon, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is profitable for building up as it fits the occasion." that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Stop. When it says don't grieve the Spirit of God, what's the rest of the verse say? By whom you were what? Sealed for the day of redemption. So in other words, when you grieve God's Spirit as a child of God, you don't lose your salvation. It doesn't change your status. You're going to miss out on some blessings that are available to you. You're going to be walking around beating yourself up when God's not beating you up. You're going to miss out on the comfort that he gives to those who come to him and repent. David actually wrote, he says, when I was ignoring you, I was like a brute beast before you. I was miserable. But then when he humbled himself and said, God, you know what? I shouldn't have thought I'd do it any better than this. This is who I am and this is how you made me. And you, I was born in sin and I've been a sinner since the moment I was conceived. Would you just wash me clean? He began to be filled with joy and peace because God's not looking for sacrifices. That's what David says, or else I would give it. What he's looking for is a, con a contrite and broken heart. In other words, the sooner we acknowledge, God says, well, go to John chapter 15. I don't want you to take my word for it. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes it away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, and that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you, and abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? All right, don't miss this. That takes away in, in verse one, or verse two scares us. But let me clarify this for you. Look, it says every branch in me. All right. So if you're in him, that word translated here takes away is the Greek word arrow, A-I-R-O, if you want to double check me. And I can show you a couple other places that it's used. One is in Matthew chapter 14, verse 20, where the disciples, after the feeding of the 5,000, picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces, the leftovers. In other words, they picked up. That's the Greek word, arrow, picked it up. We also, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, where Jesus is carrying his cross and he falls, and they forced a man named Simon to carry his cross. That's that Greek word, arrow, again, used. If you know anything about growing grapes, if you know anything about being a vine dresser, when a branch grows down along the ground in the dirt, it's not going to produce any grapes. But the gardener doesn't just cut those off. The first thing he does is he picks them up, washes them off, and ties them up on a trellis so that they get air and sunlight. I don't believe that Jesus is saying the very first thing, that if you're in me and you're not producing fruit, I'm going to cut you off. No, that's what the NIV says, cuts off, but it's a bad translation. I believe what Jesus is saying to him is, if you're in me and you're not producing fruit, I'm going to pick you up and wash you off so that you can produce fruit. And if you are producing fruit, I'm going to prune you so you can produce more fruit. And by the way, that Greek word translated prune has also the picture of cleansing in it. And then he goes on in verse 3 and says what? You're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. But you've got to understand something. That even though you're Peter now, if you walk like Simon, you'll have no power in your life. And you'll miss out on a lot of blessings. Because apart from me doing it through you, you can't do anything. You need me. The sooner you acknowledge that, and the sooner you stop saying, Lord, I'm going to live for you today. By the way, I grew up under that kind of preaching. How many are you going to live for Jesus now? And we'd all get up and rededicate ourselves. We'd walk down the aisle. I'm going to live for Jesus from now on. And then we fall flat on our face and we spend all this time saying, well, maybe I'm not saved. And you ever been down that road? Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 4 and then verses 9 through 17. All right, 9 through 16. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You say, Jim, I love that whole section until that last verse. What if I'm walking according to the flesh, but not according to the spirit? Jump down to verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body's dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. 
But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Then he goes on and says that we're also heirs. But I just want you to hear this. If you are in Christ, you're not in the flesh. You may choose to walk in the flesh a day or two or a time or two, but that's not who you really are. You are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, the Spirit of God's in you and he sealed you. Now, you have the choice on a daily basis whether or not you're going to live like Simon or live like Peter. If you live like Peter, though, you will be rewarded and there'll be blessings in this life and the life to come. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, verses 6 and following talks about how we're to be careful what we build on top of this salvation. I think it's verse 10, actually. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. We're to be careful what we build on top of this salvation. We have to choose whether or not we're going to use gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble. And if you choose to build on top of your salvation with the worthless stuff, the stuff that amounts to nothing, because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. If you try to live your Christian life in your own strength, the scripture there says that that person will be saved, but they'll suffer loss. But those of us who choose to let God work his life through us will receive reward. Our feelings are strong, but they never, ever supersede God's word. So, if God's word is true, and God's word is sure, and what God has said will happen will happen, no matter how strongly you feel otherwise, it's time we really started to not only read the word of God, but believe it. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verses 16 and 17. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and what? Establish them in every good work and word. Who is going to establish you in every good work and word? God, Jesus, who lives within you. You have to get up on a daily basis. And that's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We're to take our flesh every day and lay it on the altar and say, Lord, apart from you, I can't do anything today. But I choose not to live like Simon. I'm not going to try to live for you. I'm going to believe that you'll live through me. And I'm going to work to do what you said, but I'm going to believe that you're going to do it through me. And that's why we need to pray on a regular basis throughout the day. Pray without ceasing. We're to continually be talking to God. That's why we're to spend time in the word, knowing what he said and believing what he said. Let me give you a scripture that some of you may know, but I don't think many of us really, really believe it. Go to Psalm 1. Look at verses 1 through 3. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But this person who's blessed, is de their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on God's word, God's law, he meditates day and night. Whoever meditates on God's word day and night is like a tree transplanted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. I'm not going to ask you if you believe it. Because you can say all you want. The only real evidence is what's really going to happen in the days to come. If you really believe this was true, 
that you spent time in God's word, meditating on it, thinking about it, spending time in prayer, seeking the Father, trying to let him live his life through you, not beating yourself up when you have a bad day or a bad moment, but keeping moving forward, continuing growing in the grace of God, straining toward what's ahead, forgetting what's behind, living like Paul did, where he, he made mistakes. I mean, good grief, Acts chapter 15, Paul gets in a fight with Barnabas. If you want to talk about being cantankerous, you, you get, it's hard to get in a fight with Barnabas. He got in such a bad fight with Barnabas, the two of them split company and didn't talk to each other. But you know what? God still used Paul. And actually later on he realized he was in the wrong about John Mark and he wrote in one of his last books, go get John Mark. He's actually helpful to me. But the Bible says that if you are willing to meditate on his word day and night, he's going to put you where you'll be fed. You're going to yield your fruit when it's time. Your leaf will never wither. And in all that you do, you'll prosper. I don't know what else to tell you. God's word is true. God's word is sure. And what he says will happen will happen no matter how strongly you may feel differently. Let's go back to Matthew 26. I think that's where we've been studying from tonight. <laughs> Look at what happens next. Folks, this isn't only true of us to acknowledge our need of God. Jesus himself needed to rely on power from the Father in order to live his life of obedience in human form. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples, said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Why did Jesus go off into the garden to pray? And go off separately, especially, and he take Peter, James, and John with him. Why does he go? Why is he going to pray? Is it to teach them about prayer? No, they're sleeping through that lesson. And he actually, knowing that they're sleeping, continues to pray. Why did Jesus pray? He needed the Father's strength because even though he was God, he humbled himself and he took the role of a servant, and he only did what he did by God's power. In other words, Jesus could do nothing apart from the Father while he was in human form. He lived the life that we have right now. He yielded himself to the Father. He even says in John 14, verse 10, the works you see me doing are not me doing them, it's the Father doing them through me. Jesus was God, but he never took a hold of his godness, the scripture says in Philippians chapter 2. He didn't claim equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he took the form of a servant. And that also means that's why he spent so much time in prayer, so much time meditating on the Father's word, because he was human just like you and I, tempted in every way. We've been tempted in a lot of ways, but there's areas that don't tempt me at all. But he was tempted in every way, yet he never sinned. Why? Because he continually spent time with the Father. Oh, and guess what? He was transplanted by streams of water. His leaf never withered. 
He produced his fruit when it was time, and everything he did prospered. That's why he turned to his disciples when they couldn't cast out the demons that earlier they could, but this level of demon they couldn't. That's why he said to them, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. It wasn't that he all of a sudden had a time of prayer and a time of fasting. No, if you notice, he just told the demon to come out. He didn't even pray. He lived a life of prayer and fasting. He spent his time focusing on God, saying no to his flesh and yes to the spirit. For years as a traveling preacher, I'll show up at a church and the, the, the pastor or whoever's there will say, do you need to go get in the pastor's office and be quiet and get ready? And I'm like, no, I'm good. But don't you need to prepare? If I'm not ready now, I'm in trouble. If I'm not ready now, you're in trouble. If all of a sudden five minutes sitting in the pastor's office is going to get me ready, you guys don't understand how this works. That's why I'm, when I walk into the pulpit or try to teach, I've lived my life in this book. I live my life. As I'm teaching you, by the way, I have notes here, but I've skipped over and jumped over because I'm talking to the Lord and he's showing me. Skip that one. Jump over to here and he leads me and you'll get stuff they don't get on Tuesday night and vice versa. But he knows who's here and I don't want to just do this in my strength and then drive home and say, God, I hope you're pleased. I hope you did. I hope I did good. I want to walk out of here tonight saying I let him do it. Whatever he has in mind, it's him. And folks, I want to challenge you. God's word is true. God's word is sure. And everything he said will happen, will happen. It doesn't matter what Satan's whispered in your ear and how strongly you may feel otherwise. How many people have you run into say, I know what God's word says, but my situation's different. Oh, I think it was a good thing for Peter to find out whatever he says is going to happen. You want proof? Because I was convinced that there was no possible way I'd ever deny him, and I didn't even make it 12 hours. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll close tonight with this. Ephesians chapter 6. Actually, two more passages. Ephesians 6 and then James. You want to know why you need to spend time regularly, continually in communication with the Father? And by the way, when it, the Bible says pray without ceasing, and, uh, and as you're about to see in Ephesians 6, that we're to pray at all times, you're going to say, well, how can I eat? How can I do my job? That's why you have to learn how to be in communication with the Father in your spirit, talking to him, letting him speak to you. He'll bring scriptures to your mind. You'll, you'll spend time talking to him about the things he's been showing you as you read his word. In Ephesians 6, look at verses uh, 10 through 12, and then we'll jump to verse 18. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle, guys, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Then he goes on about the armor. And he's just talked about verse 17. Uh, then he says in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying what? At all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In other words, he goes, look, we're in a battle that isn't what you can see. That's why it's frustrating to me to hear so many Christians talking about what they can see. We lose sight of what we can't see. And now I listen, I'm not standing up here saying not sound like I'm better than everybody else. I'm just as guilty. But mine's in a different way. A lot of you may know this, maybe you don't. But two weeks ago, my wife on a Sunday night was coming home 
And she was at the intersection of O'Galley Boulevard and US-1, heading to go across the causeway to our house. And while she was sitting there, a guy did not stop and rear-ended her and shoved her into the truck in front of her. She calls 911, of course, and then she quickly gets on the phone with me. And she calls me, I'm four minutes away. She says, Jim, you need to get here quick. I've just been rear-ended pretty bad. So, of course, I'm checking to see if she's okay. She says, I think I'm okay, I'm a little sore. We've taken her to the doctor and the chiropractor and all that stuff. We've done all the stuff we're supposed to do and praise the Lord, she's doing fine. The van, on the other hand, is not. And she loves that van. And Lord blessed us with that van. But it's looking now like the repairs might be more than it's worth. And if they write us a check for what it's worth, nowhere near as much as it's worth to us. And we couldn't, for the amount of money they give us, even get anything close to what that was. And I have been anxious. And my wife has said, the same God that blessed us with that van will take care of us if they total it. She doesn't want it totaled. She's actually been texting family members, pray that they don't total it. I don't want that to be the last time I drive my van when I take it to the repair shop. She loves that van. And here I am, the preacher, saying, what are we going to do? That's going to cost us $10,000 to even add to what they give us to get. And my wife had to say, relax. As much as I love that van, God will take care of us. By the way, that's why we need to spend more time together in these days. Because there are days that you're going to be the one that's strong in faith for a brother or sister that's weak in faith. Do you understand? You're going to have good days and bad days. The preacher's not always right. I'm not always walking in the spirit. I sometimes myself take my eyes off of the Lord and the spiritual truths and in the realm and what the scripture says. And I put them on what man can see. That's why we need to lovingly come alongside of each other and says, don't forget what he said. Don't forget what he said. The sooner we acknowledge our weakness, the sooner we'll seek his help. How often are we supposed to seek his help? Constantly. Which means we have to constantly acknowledge our weakness. Go to James chapter 4. We'll close with James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. The sooner we acknowledge that need, the sooner we get the peace. You got it. James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. You don't need to stand up and say, Satan, I rebuke you. No, don't, don't play that game. Even the angel Michael, Archangel Michael didn't dare bring accusation against Satan. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. The Bible says in the book of Job, Job, Jude, I'm losing my language here, the last part here. Listen, you don't fight Satan. You back up into the robe of Jesus. And then he walks away. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Too many of us have taken this greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world so that we can go and, no, I'm nothing. But he's promised that he would take care and he would provide. He hasn't promised that I won't have bumps. He hasn't promised that I won't have bruises. He hasn't promised that I won't have pain. He hasn't even promised that I won't die. But he said, even if I die, he'll be there. He'll escort me into his presence and I will never really die. I'm all right. 
I'm going to be all right. And so are you. You know what? We may even sit here tonight as we close and say, you know what? You're right, Jim. Guess what? Tomorrow's a new day and you're going to have to lay your flesh back on the altar on a daily basis. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.